Welcome to Lost River Legends. Our motto, Ex Tenebris, is Latin for Out of the Shadows. We attempt to understand the complex world around us and bring light to subjects hidden in darkness. We explore paranormal topics with guests from all around the world. Now welcome your Lost River Legends hosts, James and Brett. We hope you enjoy the show. This episode of Lost River Legends, me and James sit down with Mark O'Connell. Mark O'Connell is a screenwriter, teacher, and blogger. He wrote episodes for Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and he's also developed feature film projects with major studios such as Walt Disney and DreamWorks Animation. He's also the founder of the UFO blog High Strangeness. Mark is also the author of the book The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs, which is the biography for Dr. J. Allen Hynek, the infamous UFO researcher and lead investigator for Project Blue Book, the secret, not-so-secret government entity which largely researched UFO and alien encounters across North America. Mark is also featured on the television hit series UFO Witness, which is currently streaming on the Discovery Plus channel. And as the name implies, UFO Witness, they discuss UFO Witness cases from Project Blue Book and beyond. Both James and I highly recommend watching this series as it delves deep and provides new insights to a previously closed out government entity, Project Blue Book. And in this episode, we talked to Mark about how he got into the UFO field, how he got into Project Blue Book, and then eventually writing the biography for Dr. J. Allen Hynek. We also discussed my father's own experience with a supposed Project Blue Book employee and the consequences of researching that and what it led to. Both James and I thank everyone for listening to the show and for supporting the podcast. We can't thank you enough. And we just want to take a moment to thank Mark for being on this episode and for sharing his time with us. And before we get into the interview, here is a quick introduction to UFO Witness on the Discovery Plus channel. All of a sudden, there is this orange beam of light. I'm Ben Hansen, former federal agent. I've gained access to a top secret archive, the Blue Book Files. containing reports of over 10,000 UFO sightings investigated by the U.S. government. On my way to meet with Jenny Zeidman from Project Blue Book. Is this the Blue Book file? People know how to keep secrets. The government's clearly trying to just explain these things away. Why would they abduct humans? They need our DNA. Three bulky-looking creatures. They're not from this world. I guarantee that. Hostile aliens, missing time. I want to go check it out for myself. I see this object in the sky. It was right here. There was something inside of that thing. Something's happening. They're coming whether we want it to or not. 
This planet has been under surveillance for centuries. Is it possible there's a secret alien base? It's about time the public knows. They deserve to know. You have a tap on your line. It's coming from the government. We could be on the verge of uncovering some very big secrets. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. We're joined by Mark O'Connell. He is joining us from Georgia today, and he is the author of The Close Encounters Man, the biography of J. Allen Hynek. He's also a contributor of the Star Trek Deep Space Nine series, and more recently his work is on the UFO Witness uh, documentary series on, uh, you can find that on Discovery Plus and the Travel Channel. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, we really are excited to have you on the show. We have some great material to cover. Um, we're, we're fanboys of um, this subject at large, but also recently getting more acquainted with um, your work, especially on UFO Witness. Um, I would like to get into kind of some of your background, how you got into UFOs, and what were some of your influences that to, that help you continue to uh, pursue that knowledge in this arena. My, I never get tired of telling this story. My interest in UFOs and aliens came about when I was very, very little. When I was about about three years old, my first conscious memory. My mom was watching the premiere episode of this new science fiction TV show called The Outer Limits. So this was in 1963. I was three years old. And this, I I have no idea why my mom was watching this. She had the TV on and that's what, that's what she was watching. And this horrible, scary alien appears and starts, uh, you know, killing everyone (laughs) and wreaking havoc. And I was scared to death it was the premiere episode was called the galaxy being and the creature was was just absolutely terrifying to my little three-year-old mind so i ran upstairs and i hid and i told my mom i wouldn't come out until the monster went away so of course i had to wait there the whole hour (laughs) until the show was over till the monster went away before i'd come back out again and so even though that was a very traumatic experience and i you know i could still remember how terrified i felt Somehow or other, it really kicked off this lifelong interest in aliens and, and outer space and flying saucers and um, all, all that, all sorts of paranormal stuff. That's how it all started. It makes no sense to me, but that's the way it works sometimes, I guess. You know, I could totally relate. I grew up with my dad watching uh, Doctor Who, the old old Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. Uh, v, you know, they tear their faces off and eat rats. <laughs> And yeah. of course, uh, <laughs> Close Encounters of the Third Kind when that came out. So certainly can relate with that, like fear turning into fascination, turning into yeah. like, okay, this is this is a really cool subject. Um, so I, I can relate uh-huh. with you there. Really appreciate you sharing that. Um, so um, I know that later on, some of that interest turned into a little bit of what some would say um, professional work with the Muf- uh, MUFON group. Can you describe kind of how you got into that and kind of how that led you to the path of where you're at now? Yeah, the MUFON experience was was pretty interesting. I had, About 10 years ago, I started writing a UFO blog called U- called High Strangeness. And that's still ongoing, highstrangenessufo.com, although I haven't written anything on it for, for quite a while. There are reasons for that. But when I first started writing the blog, um, 
of course I started to panic immediately about, Oh my gosh, how am I ever going to find enough material about UFOs to keep writing about this? Like every week or every, you know, every couple of days. And so I was just spending loads of time online, just doing t- all sorts of research on uh, UFOs. And I found that there were already a lot of really great UFO uh, blogs out there. And, um, but I kept looking and looking until I found a, the website for MUFON, the mutual UFO network and down in the lower corner of their, of their homepage on their website was a little flying saucer and a little note that said, be a volunteer UFO investigator. And I thought, yes, I'll sign up to be an investigator and that'll give me endless material to write about in my blog. It was like perfect, the perfect fit. So I joined MUFON and it costs, I I think at the time it cost about $60 or something. So I joined MUFON and immediately signed up to um, be an investigator. So to be an investigator, you have to study this really huge, um, it's a really huge three ring binder. It's the, the uh, field guide to being a, a MUFON UFO investigator. And it just tells you everything you need to know to investigate a UFO case. Everything from, it's got like pages and pages of illustrations of aliens that you can have UFO witnesses point to, to say, oh, that's what I saw, that's what I saw. It's got, it teaches you how to use a Geiger counter and how to, you know, stay safe from radioactivity at a UFO landing site. I mean, just everything you could possibly think of in investigating uh, a UFO sighting, it's all there. And then you take a test, okay? But it's an open book test, <laughs> so it's not that hard. <laughs> so you do the test and you're just basically fl- fl- flipping through the field manual to find the answers to the questions. So, so I did the test and of course I passed because it was an open book test. So for the next five years, I became um, a field investigator in the state of Wisconsin. That's where I lived at the time. And I very quickly became the assistant state director um, and the chief investigator for the state of Wisconsin, just not because I was good, but just because there are so few people in the organization or there were at the time that we all just sort of had to fill in wherever there was a need. Um, So over the course of that time, I investigated about 150 sightings. And, you know, the vast majority of them are... um, I guess you could call them dead ends. It's not that the person didn't see something. It's just that there's so little information to go on from that sighting that it's just impossible to draw any conclusions and, and, you know, make any sort of judgment as to what that person saw. Um, So that was one of the real challenges. A lot of the cases were like that. Somebody would see a light in the night sky that was moving strangely okay, that sounds interesting. And I'll, you know, I'll spend some time on the phone talking to that person, but ultimately if that's all there is to the experience, then like I say, it's, it's all I can really do is mark it down in my case file as, you know, either unexplained or unknown or insufficient data. That's what most of the cases were. But then every once in a while, there'd be a case that was really, really kind of spooky and kind of fascinating and where I was really, um, really felt confident that the witness was being reliable and honest and was really relating a true story to me. I mean, sometimes you can kind of tell, sometimes you can't, but 
there were there were certain special cases that would come up where the witness was really credible, the sighting was really amazing and and sometimes really scary, and um, and those were the cases that keep you going. You know, those are the cases that keep you, you know, wondering what's going on. But it also it was also really helpful to me to do that work just to um, just to spend so much time with UFO witnesses because I was really curious to learn. Um, the psychology behind a UFO event, like, you know, is there a certain type of person who sees UFOs or what type of, or is there a certain type of person who reports seeing a UFO? And if they do, how does that change their, how does that change their life? How does that change the way they think about, you know, the world around them? So from that point of view, it was incredibly valuable. I really learned a lot about, you know, about the experience of being a UFO witness now, and that has become very valuable to me in my, in my work and in my writing over the years. So that was the really cool part about MUFON. If you want to ask me about some of the cool MUFON cases, I mean, I could go on for a couple hours probably, but I'll just tell you one, I'll just give you as a sample, one of the cases that I I was really interested in and still am. Um, so, a, a retired army guy reported on a group, a mass sighting that he had been part of at an army base all the way back in 1980. He had never told anybody about it, but he finally just kind of broke down and said, well, I got to tell somebody it's going to drive me crazy after 30 years. So he reported it to MUFON. It got, it got assigned to me and I've been in touch with this gentleman. In fact, we just sort of reconnected last week after being out of touch for a few years. And he still maintains, you know, his story hasn't changed a bit. Uh, I'm interested in working with him because he has a list of names of all the other servicemen who were on duty with him the night of this event. And at some point we would like to start a project. I'm not sure how we'll do it yet, but we'd like to start a project where we try to connect contact with everybody on that duty roster from that night and see if anyone else remembers anything about the event. So, those cases like that really made the MUFON work. It makes it, it makes it real easy to overlook all the cases that don't really add up to much. You know, it gets a little boring and disappointing if that's all you ever see, but then you get one of these really fascinating and scary cases and it makes up for everything because you realize, yes, this is why I'm doing this job because this is the kind of thing I want to be a part of. Yeah. Those, those big nuggets that come kind of get thrown your way, um, you know, I would, I would imagine that that, that, um, momentum or that, um, Mm -hmm. that keeps the passion alive. Um, yeah. And and I gotta say, it's one of the other things I learned right away is it's really kind of, I feel kind of honored to be able to speak to these people, to be able to meet them and hear their stories, because in a lot of cases, this is something they've never talked about to anybody in their life. You know, they've just kept it inside because they were afraid they'd be ridiculed and they just didn't want to deal with that. So they kept it inside, but you know, but at some point they just have to share the story with someone. And it's, I I always felt that it was a real honor to be that person who got to hear their story for the first time. Um, And, and, and I can tell you one other really amazing thing that I learned. Well, I thought it was amazing that with all these witnesses, no matter what the, you know, no matter what the size or scope of the experience, whether it was a real spectacular event or just something really minor, tend to just want to know these same two simple things. They, first of all, they want to know what was that thing that I saw? Want to know, has anybody else ever seen it? 
because they really want to know if anyone, because if someone else has seen it, it validates their experience and they really want to have that experience validated. So I, I thought that was, and that gives you a good gauge of, you know, whether the person is being honest or not. It's like if they're really interested in knowing if someone else has had seen it to me, that showed a real sincere, a real sincerity and a, and a real belief that, you know, that their experience was real and it's, it's possible that it's been experienced by other people too. So that was always kind of a big thing to me. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good litmus test for, um, not so, so much, I wouldn't say credibility, but for, um, like motive, I guess if that makes sense. Like that there's mm-hmm. not an alter, yeah. ulterior motive, um, in that case. Um, I, yeah, I would agree with that. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the Dr. Hynek's um, classifications of encounters, um, close close mm-hmm. encounters, and kind of do those play into the MUFON stuff as far as classifications go? Is there crossover? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things I learned about Dr. Hynek when I started researching my biography of him was that it – it, it, he actually had three other categories besides the three close encounters categories early, early on in his work when he was doing work for project blue book for the air force. And he started trying to look at it as a scientific problem. So he tried to classify the phenomenon, different, you know, different types of phenomenon. So the first three he came up with early on in his career were very, very simple daylight discs. That's obvious. Somebody sees a disc in the sky during the daytime. Uh, the second one was meandering nocturnal lights, also pretty self-explanatory. And we get a lot of those in MUFON. We get a lot of the meandering nocturnal lights. And the third one was visual and radar sightings. And those were the cases Heineck really could sink his teeth into, right? Because not only had somebody, uh, you know, in the, in the control tower, made a visual fix on an, on a UFO, but they've actually picked it up on their radar screens. And in some cases, there are also people on the ground who have also, who have also made, you know, gotten a visual, uh, a visual reading on this object as well. So those were the first three, but over time, Heineck realized that he needed to, he needed to sort of, you know, drill down a little deeper into this. So he came up with the close encounters categories and those close encounter of the first kind is, a simply a visual sighting of a UFO, but within about 500 yards, because he felt like at that distance, at that proximity to the object, the witness could make out a shape and an outline and make out if it was solid matter that they were looking at. So that's the first kind. Close encounters of the second kind um, involves that UFO leaving some physical evidence that it was there. So that could be anything from uh, a UFO shutting down a car's engine, giving the witness retinal burns, you know, any sort of health issues that the witness encounters after the sighting or during the sighting. Um, It could involve depressions in the ground where landing struts set down when the ship landed or, or burning, burning bushes or trees in the area where the UFO came down or where it lifted off. So those were all close encounters of the second kind. And those were Dr. Hynek's favorite kind because like with the visual radar sightings, there was actually some, there was a tangible sign that something had really happened here. There was a physical sign. There was physical evidence. So Hynek really liked the close encounters of the second kind. And there were a lot of them in project blue book, a lot. 
And then close encounters of the third kind involves occupants of the UFO, some sort of beings or entities associated with the UFO sighting. And even though Hynek created that class of sightings, he hated it. He kind of hated it all his life. He was never really comfortable with the whole idea of UFO occupants. It just brought up too many uncomfortable questions that he knew he couldn't answer. So he just never wanted to go there. Uh, well, I wanted to get a little bit of background on Dr. Uh, Hynek. I kind of jumped ahead a little bit there, but I'd like to get a little bit of background on who he was, how he got involved in Project Blue Book, what his contributions were. And then uh, after that, I'd like to kind of like circle back to how you kind of came into curation or um, not so not so much possession because you're more you're more of a curator or a contributor to maintaining the QFON stuff. So I'd like to kind of go through kind of that life cycle, and then I have some other questions getting into the uh, Betty and Barney Hill stuff. Oh, cool! I love that case. Well, Doctor when I got when I got the opportunity to write Doctor Heineck's biography. Um, I quickly learned some interesting things about him that I had never, ever known before. Um, and one of them was the fact that he had had such an accomplished career as an astronomer. That's how he started out. Um, he got his, he got his PhD in, in astrophysics at the university of Chicago. Um, he actually did his field work at the Yerkes observatory in my home state of Wisconsin. And I used to live about, 20 minutes from the Yerkes Observatory, and it's just an amazing, beautiful place. But that's where Heineck did his graduate work, um, watching binary stars in, for a lot of his career, and then eventually looking for supernovae. So he's just this mild-mannered astronomy professor. He gets a job at The Ohio State University and moves to Columbus, and um, or is it Dayton? No, it's Columbus, that's right. So he moves, so he's teaching in Columbus at the Ohio State University, and um, these guys from the Air Force show up from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, right up the road in Dayton, and they kind of hem and haw with Dr. Heineck for a while, and they finally say, well, you know, have you ever heard of UFOs? And Heineck's like, yeah, a little bit, because, you know, at this point, this is 1948, UFOs were just sort of entering into the public's consciousness. And these guys from the Air Force Base say, well, we need somebody to study UFO reports and tell us if, if these people were just looking at comets and stars and asteroids and things. And Heineck's like, sure, a little extra money, that sounds great. So that was kind of the first interesting thing I learned about Heineck was that he really had this fascinating career as an astronomer. And he did some, he did some really groundbreaking work over the years, but it's always been overshadowed by his UFO work. That sort of came to define him. Another thing that interested me about him was he had this spiritual side that I, I knew nothing about. He was, he was really into um, the philosophy of the Rosicrucians, which I always found very interesting because you don't really associate that with a scientific mind. Um, but he definitely had an inquisitive mind, and he was very interested in, um, I don't know if he would agree with the word supernatural, but he was definitely interested in paranormal uh, phenomenon for sure. So those were some of the interesting things, um, that I learned about him, how I came to be involved with his, his organization, KUFOS, the center for UFO studies. It was, it just kind of fell into my lap, honestly, when I, and it goes back to when I was doing my blog and I was 
always looking for new UFO stories to write about in the blog. Um, at that time I was living in Chicago and I discovered that Dr. Hynek's center for UFO studies was still active even 30 years after his death. And it was right there in Chicago, just a couple of miles from where I lived. So I started, I wrangled an invitation to visit Kufos and I started going there regularly. And it's just basically a corner of, of, uh, this guy's basement. Okay. Kufos doesn't really exist as an entity. I mean, it kind of does legally on paper, but they don't have their own building. They don't have their own facilities. It's just a whole bunch of files stored in a couple of people's basements. Um, so that's where I would go. I would go to Mark Rodiger's basement and I would look up all this Heineck stuff. And at one point, um, I was talking to Mark on one of my visits and he said, you know, we've always wanted to find a right, a writer to tell the definitive account of Dr. Heineck's career. And he said, you know, I've, I've read some of your blog. I like your writing. I wonder if you'd be interested in doing this. <laughs> I just said, yes, absolutely. I would love to do that. What a dream job for me. Um, so that's how it all came to be. And then I just sort of made Kufos my second home, to be honest, over the next couple of years while I was researching the book. Um, and it's unbelievable fun to go searching through someone else's files. <laughs> I just really loved it because you just never know. You'll pull open the drawer in a file cabinet and you'll just find some buried treasure filed away in a folder that nobody has looked at for, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 years. Wow. So um, to be clear, so Kufos and Project Blue Book, do they, do they share any of the same ground or are they two separate things? No, they're two separate things. Dr. Hynek worked for Project Blue Book from, well, first he worked for the Air Force on Project Sign in 1948. Then he came back to Project Blue Book in 1952-ish, around that time, and stayed with Blue Book all the way through till it ended in 1969, 1970. So it wasn't until after Blue Book had bit the dust that Hynek formed the Center for UFO Studies. Um, and in fact, he, he announced it on national TV in 1973. So there, so there was a, a gap of three or four years between Blue Book and um, Kufos. But during those three or four years, Hynek was becoming more and more vocal. For the first time in 20 years, he didn't have his hands tied behind his back by the Air Force. You know, He wasn't being muzzled or told what to say about UFOs. He was free to say exactly what he wanted about UFOs. And, you know, so that's what he did. So the end of Project Blue Book was very liberating for Dr. Heineck. It, you know, it enabled him to just say and do whatever he wanted where UFOs were concerned. So that's a really nat natural pro uh, progression there going from the um, classified and kind of closed to more of an open source and uh, yeah. open, you know, for everyone to kind of participate. So. And I think that's kind of what we've, mm -hmm. we've found is that um, you know, the open source is actually a, a great information gathering system. And along those lines, MUFON, KUFON, um, all, all of those. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's several others out there that are able to, um, to gather. There's the um, New Fork, you know, um, you, mm -hmm. North, let me see if I can get this right. New Fork is the... Um, North American UFO Reporting Center. Yeah, yeah. Is that correct? Do I have that correct? Or National UFO National. Reporting Center. There we go. Um, yeah. So my favorite is FUFOR. 
the fund for UFO research. <laughs> well, we're having some. I think FUFOR still exists in some in some way, some fashion. We're we're loosely doing FUFOR sure. right now, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of. Cool. Um, let's see here. I'd like to get a little bit into the Betty and Barney Hill case. Um, that yeah. that case is um, with with the audio, the physical evidence. Um, it kind of brings in like a whole new uh, layer to things. Um, you know, we have we have the audio of of Betty saying that there's a, mm-hmm. a needle that's uh, you know protruding into her, her abdomen. Um, can yeah. you get a little bit into the nuts and bolts of that case, and then maybe into some of the lesser known aspects of the case? Well, when I was writing my book, that was one of the chapters I was most excited about writing because um, I had always been fascinated by that story. And to be able to really just delve into it on my own and dig up, dig up information and resources that hadn't necessarily been commonly known at the time was really, really exciting. So just just um, for your listeners who don't know the case, it's real simple. In 1961, this newlywed couple, Barney and Betty Hill, were, they were driving home from their honeymoon through the mountains of New Hampshire. It just so happened that they were a mixed-race couple. Betty was white, Barney was black. Uh, that may or may not have some relevance to what happened to them. It's hard to say, but it's, but it is, it, it's a fact. Um, so they're driving home from their honeymoon late at night, and they see a really bright star in the night sky, and it's moving, so it first just appears to be a small aircraft. Um, but it seems to be moving in their direction. It seems to be getting closer and closer. So they kind of keep an eye on it for a while, and they're kind of fascinated by it. Then eventually they pull over to get a better look at it. This object comes very, very close to them, and Barney, Barney does get the gun out of the trunk of his car, um, cause he's concerned about what's going on by this thing uh, approaching them and he sees people inside of it and he runs back to the car and, and one of the people inside of it seems to be communicating with him telepathically, telling him it's okay, that he's safe, but Barney doesn't believe it. So he runs back to the car. They take off down the highway. Next thing they know, they're being diverted off the highway by what they think is like a road crew, some emergency vehicles. And they turn left onto this little dirt road and they are taken out of their car by these strange little men and taken into a moon shaped spaceship, physically examined and then put in their car and sent on their way. And Barney and Betty had no idea any of this happened for a couple of years. They had nightmares about it, um, but they just seemed like nightmares. Eventually they started um, seeing a hypnotherapist put them into time regression hypnosis and they started recalling all of these terrifying events. Um, in the meantime, they had like two hours of missing time. This is one of the, this is one of the first like famous occurrences of missing time because when they finally got home that night, they realized it was two hours later than it should have been. And they couldn't figure out why, because the trip had been perfectly normal to them. So it's a really fascinating story. There's tons and tons of supporting evidence. In fact, we go into some of that in an episode of UFO witness. Uh, where my partner, uh, Ben Hansen, actually visits the Betty and Barney Hill archives at a university in New Hampshire. So it's a really fascinating story. Heineck, I mentioned that Heineck was never comfortable with close encounters of the third kind, even less comfortable with abduction stories. But he was present when Barney and Betty were placed under hypnosis, and he came away absolutely convinced that um, 
that they had had a very real experience. To me, um, to me, it is one of the more detailed, incredible um, stories out there. I think, you know, anyone getting into the subject, it's definitely something to examine to um, kind of understand what what happened, what were um, some of the things that were s- said under hypnosis. Um, getting into the hypnosis subject, it's it's interesting um, how effective that is, and um, it seems like that's actually been a, a very become more of a scientifically credible tool to um, obtaining and accessing some of those memories. Is that something that has made any progression in its methodology or something that is, is kind of just still coming to fruition? I'm not sure that I could fully speak to that. I do know that during my MUFON work, every now and then there would be a case that came up where one of my, um, one of my colleagues in the organization would bring up the possibility that, well, maybe this witness should be placed under time regression hypnosis. Maybe they'd remember more. And whenever that idea came up, there was always a very short and very heated discussion among my colleagues uh, about whether this was a good idea or not. And the general opinion among the MUFON people, I don't, I can't speak for the whole organization, but the MUFON people that I dealt with, the general opinion was, you don't want to mess with hypnosis. It's too dangerous. There are too many things that can go wrong. Um, Better to just leave that alone. So, you know, you can interpret that any, any way you want, but that was what I always, that's what I always experienced when it came up in my work as far as, you know, as, but as in, but there are cases, there are certain famous abduction cases where hypnosis became a really big part of the investigation. Barney and Betty Hill was one of them the Pascagoula, Mississippi abduction of uh, Calvin Parker and Charlie Hickson in 1973. Those two were also placed under hypnosis. It didn't work very well because they were too terrified to relive their experience. Um, And then of course there's the Travis Walton abduction. Um, The Travis Walton was put under hypnosis more than once, I think. So, you know, hypnosis has just sort of become part and parcel of the whole UFO experience, but I know there's still some controversy over it. There are some people who, um, you know, were, were accused of misbehaving while they had subjects under hypnosis. I've never really looked into that much because it doesn't really seem like a worthwhile thing to pursue, but I know, but I, but there are things that have given hypnosis a bad name. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, and that's that's understandable. Um, it is interesting though that we've got a lot more um, what seems like corollary data points from from some of those um, more famous cases. Mm-hmm. Um, Brett actually has a question he wants to ask you. I'm going to let him fire away here. Yeah, Mark. So okay. um, when I uh, had emailed you originally, I dropped a little bit of information about my dad and an experience that he had in the early 1980s. And for listeners that are familiar with the show, they will be able to hear um, me recounting his encounter that he wrote down. Uh, Basically because of COVID and some situation, he was unable to record in person, so he just wrote everything down. But in short, um, I was probably four years old at the time. I was sleeping, him and my mom... um, witnessed a a large he said 30 to 35 foot diameter 
orb. He said it was just solid light uh, land on his property out in front of his house. And both my mom and dad saw it. And then basically there was missing time uh, for both of them. Mm. My mom doesn't like talking about it. Uh, There's some traumatic memories that she doesn't want to detail to even me. Mm -hmm. Um, But my dad remembers some information. But the next day he remembers what they saw and he just, he's, he recounted kicking himself for not going out and investigating and getting closer. And, um, anyway, he basically recounts calling the local air traffic controllers in the area. Um, and I won't, I won't tell listeners exactly where it happened, but it was in Southeast Idaho is the general area. Okay. So he ended up calling, uh, FAA, air traffic controllers and said, Hey, was there a, a, an object on your radar at this time in this location? They said no. And then they directed him to Salt Lake international airport and he called them and kind of got the same runaround. And then the guy says, well, it doesn't mean you didn't see anything just cause it didn't show up on our radar. Um, mm-hmm. and then in the short, uh, I think it was a two or three days later, he got a call from a man that claimed he was from Washington, DC asked him questions about what he saw and was on the phone for over an hour with my dad, just asking every question and and getting all the details, thanked him for his time. And that was it. And then several years later, it was probably 20, 25 years later than he's recounted this same story uh, to a person in his local church congregation. And then this individual claimed to have worked um, for a period of time with Project Blue Book and gave some details to my dad to, s- to kind of support that. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no way to prove that. My dad doesn't remember this guy's name because it was it was quite a while ago. But can you, uh-huh. can you talk to any details um, about maybe a government phone call? Is that, is that normal um, in some of these witness cases for just people getting random calls from uh, the U S government and asking questions. Is, is that a normal thing? I mean, it kind of has some tie in with, with J. Allen Hynek and, and some of the, in the field investigation work that he's done, but is that, is that a normal process? Uh, that's, a, that's such a loaded question. Is it a normal process? I mean, what the, the, the air force had, had a lot of really weird processes that they probably would call normal, but you and I wouldn't, um, there's, there are a couple things about that story that I find really fascinating. First of all, obviously, the missing time element and the fact that your, both your parents have experienced some sort of, you know, anxieties over that over the years, that, that's really fascinating right there. When the government guy called your dad, did, they, did, he, did your dad ever establish how the government guy uh, came across, across his, his name and phone number? I mean, are, are we supposed to? The, the radar operators probably passed it on to someone. I think when he contacted either the local FAA people mm-hmm. um, or the Salt Lake International Airport, uh-huh. you know, they had his telephone number. Um, yeah. I don't know if my dad gave him information, but eventually it wasn't that long ago. It was two or three days later. And this is again uh-huh. in the eighties that this occurred. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he didn't give me any details, but it, I'm supposing that something was either passed along or there was intelligence that mm-hmm. was collected somehow. Yeah. So that, see that, and that really intrigues me because that makes me wonder, um, 
were either one of these control tower uh, people under orders to relay this sort of report to their superiors. I mean, it's easier to see that with, um, well, gosh, it's not easier to see it actually now that I think about it. In the fact, the fact that, you know, both the local FAA people and the people at Salt Lake both, it's really weird. Like, why would the person, why would the local FAA person say, well, why don't you call Salt Lake instead? Because if they were orders to keep hush-hush about it, they probably would have just, you know, dissuaded your dad from contacting anyone else, I would think. So, so there are some details there that kind of seem to clash and not really add up, which makes me super interested in finding out more. In fact, my first thought is this would be a great case to profile in, in UFO Witness if we get picked up for a second season, because this is a really startling story. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost men in blackish in a, in a way, you exactly. know? You know, and it was just a couple, maybe two years ago that I actually first heard about this. You know, my uh, dad has told me before, uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen things that I can't explain, but mm-hmm. it really, it was actually, I guess the, when, when James and I first started the podcast, it was my dad sitting down with us and saying, yeah, this is, here's kind of all the things that I've, I've experienced that are kind of paranormal. And this was uh, kind of the the big kahuna, if you will, of, of, of the encounters that yeah. he's had. And so it sure does. Did, did, did your dad ever go to the site where it, it appeared that this object set, set down on the ground? Was there ever any like inspection done or analysis of soil samples or anything? Nothing. There's no formal, like, yeah, there's no sample, no analysis necessarily, but he did, he did walk out to that property the next day and set and he, he's a, he's really good with, uh, you know, he's been a surveyor. He, he was an engineer. He's a welder. He has a lot of different, uh, experience in the trades that he's had to, to gauge the size and the mass of the object and the distance from his house. And there was a, it was just a completely empty field in front of our house. Um, and again, this was a long time ago, you know, I'm, I'm almost, uh, I guess it'd be 43 this year and going out to that same house. Uh, it's a, it's a different house, a different owner actually. Uh, but that whole field house is now. And so the, you know, if we have revisit that area, I can, I can visualize as a child, I remember specifically what our property looked like and it was completely open and, uh, Anyway, yeah, some some really interesting things happen there for sure. Wait, so you said that field where the where the object appeared is now is now houses? It's a subdivision or something? It's now houses. Wow. Yep, it's a new subdivision. It's all been built in and everything's everything's covered up technically. So This is this is totally off the wall, but it makes me wonder if any of those homeowners has experienced anything weird since they moved in, like if, yeah, you you know, know, if there's any residual, never even thought about any that. residual energy or effect. I mean, who knows? You hear stories like that from time to time. I'm intrigued. I'm totally intrigued. It's a fascinating story. And from what you're, from what you're telling me, it's got a really high credibility factor. You know, those were some of the frustrating cases working for MUFON that I came across every once in a while where there were, where there were actually two witnesses, but one of the witnesses, like your mom, just didn't want to talk about it didn't want to talk about it. I, I did one case. I did one case with a, a married couple. They were in Northern Wisconsin driving to a friend's house. They saw a bright object in the sky moving towards them. 
it swooped down out of the sky and settled down, down out of sight alongside the road up ahead. And they drove up ahead to where this thing had landed and there was a house there. And they thought, wow, we really must have tricked ourselves into thinking that was something unusual because it's just a house. So they get to their friend's house about 15 minutes late. So there's a little bit of lost time in that, in that uh, story as well. They stay overnight at their friend's house. They drive back home the same route the next day and they get to where that house was and there's no house. And the gentleman who told me this story seemed very sincere to me. He, he was one of the, one of those witnesses that gave me a really strong feeling that he was telling the truth. And this was a real experience for him. And he, and I said, would I be able to talk to your wife? And he said, well, she's my ex-wife now and she never wants to talk about it. But he said, I, I'll run it past her and see if she'd be interested in talking to you. And so he got a hold of me about a week later and he said, I'm sorry, my ex just does not want to talk about it at all. So, and you know, the difference between one witness and two witnesses is huge. So if you, if the second witness just doesn't want to go there, it's, it's very frustrating, but at the same time, all you can do is respect that. Some people just want to leave the past in the past. So you just have to respect that and and move on. So. Yeah. And it's, you know, that becomes kind of a triangulating piece that kind of builds, you know, a table with two legs can't really stand on its own, but a table with three or four legs or more can stand pretty, pretty sturdy. So, yeah. well, that's, that's a fascinating uh, story you just shared with us, kind of the, the highlights. Are there any other um, Kufon, Mufon, or Project Blue Book stories um, that you could share with us that are kind of rare if they're not in, in development with any other, um, any, anything that you could share. We, we'd love to hear any more that you have. <laughs> sure. I'll just, I'll tell you a story that I just shared on another podcast that I did earlier this week. And this was, um, this is a close encounter of the second kind. And the evidence of this event is still exists and it's on display in a museum and nobody is doing anything with it, which is endlessly frustrating to me. The story is it involves it involves a, a a policeman, a patrolman in Minnesota, in a small town in Minnesota, very far north Minnesota. So you know, pretty isolated and hard to get to. Um, he's out on night patrol and he's driving down a country highway and he sees a brilliant light up ahead, about a half mile up ahead. But the light isn't on the ground; it's up in the air. And he, his first thought is, well, that he knows there's a stand of trees up there. So he thinks that maybe a light plane crashed into the tree or something. That's the only thing that makes any sense to him. So he heads in the direction of the light. Next thing he knows, the light shoots directly at his squad car, comes in through the windshield and illuminates the inside of the squad car. And the next thing this guy knows, his car's, his his squad car is stalled out sideways on the highway and he's lost 40 minutes of time, 40 minutes have gone by and there's damage to the car. There's this whole laundry list of damage to the squad car. One of the headlights has been smashed in. One of the roof lights has been smashed. There's also, there's like spider webs of cracks all over the windshield. The radio antenna have been bent over 90 degrees, but not broken off. 
There's a dent in the hood. There's all this physical evidence on this squad car. And this was, this was one of the cases that Dr. Hynek's group, KUFOS, in its heyday, back in the days when they actually had real funding and could actually do this kind of work, they sent one of their investigators up to Minnesota, and he spent some time talking with the, the patrolman, and they brought in experts from Ford Motor Company and Corning Glass Company to analyze the damage to the car, and nobody could really explain how this damage could have occurred. In particular, the weirdest part to me, <clears throat> excuse me, the weirdest part was the cracks in the windshield the glass expert could tell that some of the cracks were caused by an impact impact inside the car, but some of the cracks were also formed by impact with something outside the car. And to top all of that off, the patrolman also had retinal burns the next day. So he had to be treated by his doctor. So, and this squad car, believe it or not, is still on display in the County Historical Museum at this town, in this town in Northern Minnesota. The problem is, the gentleman who had the experience just refuses to talk to reporters. I was really hoping to interview him for my book and I just kept running into dead end after dead end. And I just kept hearing that this guy doesn't want to talk about it, you know, and in the end, again, like I said before, you just have to, you just have to respect the fact that people don't want to talk about their experience. So, but that, that case is still hanging there to the best of my knowledge. The gentleman is, is uh, still alive and he still doesn't want to talk about it. And his squad car is still on display in this museum. Wow. Wow. That's super fascinating. I think um, there's a lo- level of credibility that comes from uh, law enforcement because they're trained to observe and report. Yeah. Um, in this case, also, um, you know, his brain didn't go straight to, hey, there's a UFO in the, in the trees. There's always like mm-hmm. some kind of like, okay, there's some kind of logical explanation behind what I'm seeing it's, you yeah. know, it could be a, a, a car up there or a plane up there or something, you know, that makes sense that I'm trying to make sense of what I'm seeing. And so, you know, not, not yeah. grasping at straws, but like, here's what makes sense to me. I think that that yeah. lends credibility to that witness. Absolutely. I've talked with many witnesses who've had that same kind of experience where they just, they're looking at something they absolutely cannot comprehend and so their brain translates it into something that they can understand. One of my best friends had an experience when he was little, he and his sister were playing out in their backyard and um, they saw a weird object uh, flying past above their yard. And when they looked again, it was an airplane. And, it, and my, my friend and his sister, they both looked at each other and they were like, was that really an airplane? Um, and they're like, that, that's not what I saw at first. So they, and they can't explain it. They looked at something that, again, their brain didn't recognize. So either their brain translated it into something they could understand and accept, or maybe there was some force at work from the object itself that sort of clouded their mind and made them think they saw something else. It's, it's a weird, weird story when my friend tells it. I, I, can never quite, I can never quite get away from how creepy it is. Um, but yeah, that kind of thing I think happens, happens quite a bit. And in this case, again, uh, going back to the, the story I just told you about the patrolman in Minnesota, one detail I left out was the first thing he thought was, so his car is like sideways on the highway. And he thought, well, I must've had a near collision with another car, but 
the next day they could see the only tire marks on the road were the tire marks made by the patrol car. There was no other car on the highway. Or at least there were no signs. There were no skid marks from another car. It's a it's a really weird, creepy story, no matter how you look at it. Yeah, yeah. And to have a, you know, 5,000 to 7,000 pound vehicle turned, um, you know, if it yeah. started out straight and ended up sideways. Yeah, Some, yeah. Something, something very, very unusual happened. Wow. Well, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on. Um, we know you've got other, other work to get to. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share um, where people can find your work and get in contact you uh, with you or follow you on uh, your social outlets. Sure. Well, I'm pretty active uh, on Twitter with UFO Twitter. So you can find me there. My handle is at Mark O'Connell underscore one. And that's O'Connell with uh, two N's and two L's. You can find my book, The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs at any great bookstore. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can find it at independent booksellers and you can get it online either as a paperback or an ebook. And I'm really excited to say that it's going to be released as an audiobook sometime this spring. So um, I, think that'll be, I think that'll be really cool when that finally happens. Finally, my new show, UFO Witness, is streaming right now on Discovery Plus. Um, and it is also, if you are on Discovery Plus, you just need to look at the, the uh, program lineup for Travel Channel, uh, which they now spell T-R-V-L, so Turvel, Turvel Channel. Uh, you can find UFO Witness. There are eight episodes, um, and I'm, I'm really proud of the work we did on the show, and I think it's a lot of fun, and I, and I hope your listeners will, will check it out. That's that's awesome, and I, I can just add our endorsement to the UFO Witness show. Uh, Brett and I both uh, binge that. I went back and watched the last uh, two or three episodes here, just in, even in the past couple days, and it's it's really well done. Um, the follow up and some of the some of the uh, revelations. I, I wouldn't say conclusions, right? Because everything's still kind of question mark, but um, that yeah. kind of plays into kind of how things were for Heineck as well. There, there was kind of that 80, 20 factor going on. So always kind of keeps us hunting yeah. and searching for more. Well, one of the things I'm proudest of in UFO witness is that we, we brought some new voices into the conversation. We got, we, we got some interviews with a few people who have never spoken publicly about their UFO research or their UFO experiences uh, and we talked a few of them into sitting down on camera to do interviews and, and they've had some fascinating things to share with us. And I've been really, really thrilled and proud that we were able to do that with this show. Yeah, it's a huge thing to break that new ground and bring that new information forward. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lost River Legends. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and consider subscribing. Here at Lost River Legends, our primary focus is delivering unique topics, amazing guests, all paired with top-notch production value. The earth we live on has many hidden secrets, countless paranormal stories, and is filled with amazing, curious humans who are trying to find answers to life's questions. 
Here at Lost River Legends, we are no different. We believe an active curiosity to the unknown is ingrained in the human experience. We hope you'll join us on our journey to explore the lost legends of the earth by listening to past and future episodes. Until then, James and I wish you health, happiness, and a curious mind. And remember, the clock of life is ticking away. Don't waste another moment and live your best life.